Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. So, Alexei Navalny is back in Russia, and he is back in jail. But he is far from silent. In fact, if Vladimir Putin has decided to take off the gloves with Navalny, then the wily opposition leader and anti-corruption crusader appears to be returning the favor. Just days after being arrested upon arrival at Moscow's Sheremetyevo airport, Navalny's supporters released an entertaining two-hour video he produced accusing Putin of using fraudulently obtained funds to build an opulent billion-dollar estate on the Black Sea coast. The video has garnered more than 46 million views and counting. That number is sure to go up by the time you're hearing this, including one million in the first hour it was posted on YouTube. So the latest chapter in Navalny's battle against the Putin regime is underway. So what happens next? Hello from my makeshift studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from his makeshift studio in Fairfax, Virginia, is Vladimir Karamorza, the vice president of the Free Russia Foundation, chairman of the Boris Nemtsov Foundation, and a columnist for the Washington Post. Welcome back to the podcast, Vladimir. Good to see you. Hello, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back in the vertical. Good to have you in the vertical. And also joining us from Washington's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Ilya. Welcome back and happy birthday. Hi, Brian. Thank you. It's always good to be here. It's always good to have you. It seems like we have this tradition. Second week in a row, we got somebody celebrating a birthday. Maybe we'll have to do this every week. So as Navalny's video dropped on the internet this week, his spokeswoman, Kira Yarmish, tweeted that the opposition leader wanted to release the investigation after his homecoming, quote, so that its main character, that's of course a reference to Vladimir Putin, would not think that Navalny was afraid of him. Vladimir, I don't think I need to remind our listeners that you yourself were the target of two unsuccessful assassination attempts by the Kremlin using poison. And like all of us, you were a close friend of the late great Boris Nemtsov, who was a victim of a successful assassination attempt. How much danger is Alexei Navalny in at the moment? And conversely, how much danger is he capable of placing the Putin regime in? Well, we've all known for a long time now that it's a dangerous vocation to be engaged in uh, in opposition to this regime, the regime that stops at nothing, to muzzle and silence its opponents in many cases, literally. Uh, we know that a great number of opposition politicians, independent journalists, anti-corruption campaigners, and others viewed as undesirable by the Kremlin have lost their lives in, uh, in recent years, of course, most prominently and most brazenly in what was the most high-profile political assassination in modern history of Russia. Boris Nemtsov, the opposition leader, was gunned down literally in front of the Kremlin wall on the night of February 27th, 2015. But those are the stakes. And those of us who care about our country, who know that there are millions of people in our country who share our vision, who share our views, and who want Russia to become, to use the words of Alexei Navalny from a recent interview, a normal European country, we're not going to stop and we're going to continue. I think the biggest gift Kremlin opponents could give to this regime is if we all just 
left the country and stopped doing what we do. I mean, to me, there was no question after both of my poisonings that I needed to return back home to Russia. And I did this as soon as I was physically able to fly, as soon as doctors allowed me. So, you know, when Alexei woke up from his coma last September in Berlin at the Charité Hospital and said that he was going to go back as soon as he physically could, I was, you know, inundated by calls from Western journalists asking me to comment on the sensation, as they put it, that Navalny was returning, to which I responded that not only don't I see any kind of sensation here, I don't see any news. I mean, a Russian politician has to be in Russia. There, there is no other choice. So he made the only choice possible. Of course, the authorities uh, reacted in the way that they had announced they would. As you know, Alexei was arrested immediately upon his arrival on passing passport control. In fact, he didn't even pass passport control. They arrested him just before he was going to go through passport control. But as you just said, Brian, even from prison, Alexei Navalny is continuing to remain the biggest political danger to the regime of Vladimir Putin. Uh, you just mentioned in your introduction that this video, this investigative video about the $1.3 billion lavish Italian-built palace constructed for Putin on the Russian Black Sea coast, uh, this investigative video has already been seen by more than 46 million people closing oh, in on 47 in Russia. <laughs> Absolutely. And by the time our, our listeners hear this conversation, it will be it will be a much higher figure than that. But even if we take this figure as we speak, almost 47 million, this is higher than the total audiences of the state television news programs combined, mm -hmm. just to give our listeners an idea of how powerful and how influential Alexei Navalny's movement has become. And of course, one of the most effective ways in which the Navalny team has been able to challenge the Putin regime in recent years was by organizing tactical voting to defeat pro-Kremlin candidates in local and regional elections across Russia, even when real opponents are disqualified from the ballot, as they are in most cases in Russia. I mean, everybody remembers a farcical case in Moscow in 2019 during the Moscow City Duma election, when there was an opposition candidate named Alexander Solovyov, who was disqualified from the ballot and arrested, as were most other opposition candidates, spent the whole campaigning season in jail. But there was a spoiler candidate by the same name, Alexander Solovyov. And just a few days before the election, Navalny's team called on, on voters in that particular district to go out and vote for that guy who nobody's right. ever heard of or seen, who's never held a single campaign event, who's never appeared in the district. And he won in a landslide against the right. candidate. And the Electoral Commission spent three days trying to locate where he is to tell him that he's now an elected member of the Moscow legislature. I mean, it's a ridiculous story, but there's a serious point behind it, that by this stage, so many people in Russia are growing dissatisfied and frankly fed up with Putin and his system, that they're willing to vote for almost anybody just to send a message. And Navalny has been really effective in organizing that tactical voting to send pro-Putin candidates to humiliating defeats. And of course, this September, September 19th, 2021, we are going to have a national parliamentary election. And the main focus for Alexei Navalny and his team this year will be to repeat this tactical voting initiative, to repeat this humiliation for Putin and his party on a national scale. And if the Kremlin thinks that by placing Alexei in prison, they're going to somehow diminish this voice and diminish the effectiveness of this strategy, well, I think, frankly, they've uh, very seriously miscalculated. If anything, they're making Alexei's voice more authoritative, more powerful, and in the end, even more effective. I, I want to bring in Ilya to the discussion now. Same question to you, Ilya. I mean, how much danger is Navalny in at the moment? There used to be an unwritten rule at this level of the opposition you could be arrested, you could be harassed, you could even be beat up, but you weren't killed. And that all changed with the assassination of Boris Nemtsov. We all know this. Is his life in danger? And conversely, how much danger is he capable of putting the Putin regime in? 
Great question. I think things have changed considerably after Navalny meticulously exposed that Vladimir Putin is personally behind his poisoning. I mean, that was a first glove, really, thrown from Navalny in the face of the Kremlin regime and, and Putin personally. Then with that video about the palace and the direct call of people to go out into the streets, like in one video, essentially... Right video about the palace is an invitation for people to join the, in, you know, protest, yeah. show their disgust with this corrupt regime. I think the authorities now cornered themselves. They, they raised Navalny to international level. I mean, he was known before, but now every single uh, yeah. leader in Europe, European Parliament, already a present administration, its State Department, they're all demanding his immediate release mm -hmm. and they are vouching for you know, his well-being. So I don't think it's so easy now for Putin to uh, make an, another attempt on his life. I think they definitely fear, if not the tactical voting per se, although they fear that, that definitely, as Vladimir pointed out correctly, I think they uh, fear even more street protests and they fear the anti-rating which Navalny created. Mm. I mean, previously Navalny was accusing Putin of uh, helping his cronies, but it really worked, I think, in my view, it worked more against people around Putin. But now mm -hmm. Putin is an, an even bigger target. And we really see that the regime is fearing, uh, fears Navalny greatly because today we had arrests, uh, preliminary uh, arrests and detainments of yeah. different activists who planning to go to this peaceful protest on Saturday. I saw that Lubov Sobol was Lubov Sobol was arrested. I saw that. Oh, several people have been arrested by now. Lubov Sobol, Georgi Alburov, Kira Yarmish, Navalny's press secretary. The whole the whole team essentially has been detained. Interestingly, I also saw that the Samara police officer Kirill Chuprov, who allegedly leaked some of the information to Bellingcat, pointing to who Navalny's assassin attempted assassins were, he's supposedly been detained in Samara. So that's um, that's all. I just saw that as I was preparing to start this recording. But go continue, Ilya. I didn't want to. Well, I'm sure they will try to pinpoint who leaked this scheme of the palace. I'm sure they will try to send a signal that you know, you should not be a traitor within the system, but it doesn't work. The whole system is so corrupt that it's just, there are constant leaks and people even within the system are fed up with the scale of corruption and ineptitude of the regime. It's it's interesting when you're looking at this Putin's palace video, the one that's got 46 million views and counting. If Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first time Navalny's gone after Putin personally in one of his videos and one of his anti-corruption investigations. He's gone after Putin's cronies. He's gone after, you know, other people in the elite, but he never went after Putin himself until now. He even went after Medvedev, uh, but he never went after Putin himself. Is this significant? Well, I would say he did go after Putin before, but not on such scale and not with such an expose for two hours, like taking... Yeah. From his early days to like latest events. Yeah. He did call Putin names and he showed yeah. particular instances from his biography and several, if not videos, there were many posts by Navalny and various. In, but yes, this is, as I said, it, he threw a glove into his face. It's, it's almost like a duel of two internationally recognized figures. That's, wow. that's how I see it, at least from Washington. That's how many policymakers now see it. That's why I think 
Navalny is really now a recognized leader of Russian opposition in in the eyes of many policymakers in the West who follow Russia events. Vladimir, would you agree with that? Is this a significant escalation by Navalny's part? Is this significant that he made Putin the star of one of his videos, which is this is the first time I've seen Putin be a star of one of Navalny's videos? Well, Ilya is absolutely correct that, of course, Alexei Navalny has been going after Putin for a long time. I mean, Putin and the Putin regime have been targets of Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption and political activity for, for many, many years. But but you're right to say that this is the first time he went directly after Putin's own pockets, as it were, after mm-hmm. his own money and after his own corrupt personal interests. And just just to give our, uh, our listeners just a vague, a vague idea of what we talking about maybe not, not not everyone has seen this uh, this film yet i mean this is a 1.3 billion dollar venetian style luxurious palace standing on a 200 acre lot uh, on the russian black sea coast at some of the best part of russia's black sea coastline it's near abrao durso which was uh, mm. which is the imperial champagne house uh, before the right. revolution some of the most beautiful parts of the russian black sea coastline and this is uh, this is a massive complex that includes you know swimming pools, skating rings, greenhouses, apparently a special room to store therapeutic mud. I mean, you see all of these details in Alexei's uh, film, you know, sofas costing 25,000 US dollars. and tunnels leading to the Yes, I mean, a a table (laughs) that costs 55,000. So so the whole, the the entire cost of this is estimated at $1.3 billion. This is something that Putin is building personally for himself. You know, 23% of households in Russia don't have access to a central sewage system. This is the official statistic. We have 20 million people in our country who are below or just about at the poverty line. And this is after years and years of high oil prices that that Putin had the benefit of. This is what he's using it for, for personal enrichment. And everybody sort of knew that for a long time. But it's one thing to know this in theory and quite another to actually see these videos and these photos and these plans and all these documents and and everything that has to do with this uh, this lavish personal pet project that Putin is basically – extorting money from some of Russia's leading businessmen, as Sergei Kolesnikov, uh, who was uh, uh, one of the first people to actually reveal the scheme. The first the first we've heard of this palace was actually a decade ago, 2010, 2011, when Sergei Kolesnikov, who uh, used to be sort of a businessman from a close circle of Vladimir Putin, yep. uh, but then decided to break with it and, and, and become essentially a whistleblower. He came up with this information. Boris Nemtsov included information about this palace, what was known then in one of his anti-corruption reports. But this has never been done on the scale and to the detail, uh, as has been done now by uh, Alexei Navalny's team. And certainly this is the most effective this has ever been done. I mean, you, you people on metro trains in Moscow, I, you can just visibly see people watching this on their phones. And, mm-hmm. and, and again, going back to that figure, almost 47 million people have now seen this. This is more than the total audiences of uh, state television programs combined. Yeah. And th- this video is not the only way that Team Navalny has been pushing back on the Kremlin. Vladimir Ashurkov, a-, a close ally of Navalny, has put out a post on Facebook calling for and naming names, specific people that should be sanctioned in this as a result of the poisoning and then the arrest of Navalny. How significant do you see that as, Vladimir? Well, I think this is actually crucial, and this is a central point to everything. Alexei Navalny is absolutely right to make the point that, you know, there were a lot of Western sanctions in in, in the last several years, both in Western Europe and in North America, directed against the Putin regime. But they, you know, targeted mid-level security officials Mm -hmm. or government officials, you know, symbolically. They never went after the people who are actually holding this dirty money on Putin's behalf. And, of course, the whole point of this is that, 
you know, the West has enabled for such a long time Putin's kleptocracy to exist and to function because, because this system only exists because all of those people in and around the Kremlin, all those people in, in, in Putin's close circle, are able to stash away the money that they're looting from the people of Russia in Western banks, mm-hmm. in Western jurisdictions, in Western financial institutions. You know, by the estimates of the National Bureau of Economic Research, total Russian private assets in the West total between 800 billion and 1.3 trillion US dollars. Let's round it up to 1 trillion US dollars, the golden trillion, as some people Mm -hmm. call it. This is the amount of money that has been looted from Russian taxpayers, from Russian treasury, from Russian people. Much of this wealth is connected with Vladimir Putin personally. We saw a small glimpse of that in the Panama Papers five years ago, Mm -hmm. when I was a offshore account, you will recall, $2 billion in the name of Sergei Roldugin, uh, a cello player from St. Petersburg, which just happens to be an old friend of Vladimir Putin's. And, you know, people were joking in Moscow at the time that we all thought that Paul McCartney was the richest musician in the world. Apparently, it's some guys (laughs) nobody's ever heard of, because, of course, he just acts as one of Putin's wallets holding his money. Mm -hmm. Putin's too clever to, to hold that money in his own name, obviously. So much of that golden trillion is actually directly linked with Vladimir Putin, or at least with people very close to him. Brian, you mentioned the list published by Vladimir Ashurkov on behalf of Alexei Navalny's team. This list includes people like Roman Abramovich, like Alisha Rusmanov, like uh, Igor Shuvalov, like Andrei Kostin. These are all people Mm -hmm. who are key figures, key players in this kleptocratic oligarchy that Putin has created. But the only reason it's able to function is because the West has enabled it to function for so long. You know, it's been said, not by me, but I completely agree with that phrase, that the biggest export from Putin's regime to the West is not oil, it's not gas, it is corruption. But of course, that is a two-way street. You know, for someone to be able to export corruption, someone else needs to be willing to import it. And we have not seen a shortage of those people willing to import that corruption in the West. And it is high time to put a stop to that. It is high time to freeze those looted assets. There are precedents for this. You know, Libyan assets were frozen in the time of Gaddafi. Kyrgyz assets were frozen in the time of Bakiev. After those countries had lawfully elected governments, those assets were returned to them. This is a precedent that should be used here. This money belongs to the Russian people. It should be frozen by Western governments to be returned later on once Russia has a democratically elected government to its rightful owner. And certainly there should be personal targeted sanctions on those key oligarchs that enable the, the Putin kleptocracy to exist. I mean, it's interesting. I'm looking at the list here now, and you're right, Roman Abramovich is on there, Denis Bortnikov, the vice president of FTB Bank. Yeah, I see Dmitry Patrashev, the son of National Security Council Secretary Nikolai Patrashev, Igor Shuvalov, the son of Shuvalov. So that's... Um, no, that's it's, actually Shuvalov himself. Oh, that is that day. Shuvalov that's himself? Igor Shuvalov himself. Uh-huh. He's, I will remind our listeners, he's, uh, he was uh, Putin's deputy prime minister yeah. who once, uh, who once uh, took his dog to a dog show overseas on a private plane. Again, this is just to show you a glimpse of how this ruling elite functions. And he's also, uh, right, uh, he, was, he was actually subject to uh, several investigations already by Navalny's team. They showed his uh, luxury apartments uh, in the Whitehall complex in London, for example. And I know this everywhere you look with these people, these are the people who have made a habit of stealing in Russia and then coming and spending and stashing away that stolen money in the West. And it is high time the West stops that corrosive practice, stops that enabling, stops that accepting of those people and their dirty money. It's time to put a stop to that. No, and I would I would add to that, Vladimir, that this is a it's not just because it's the right thing to do. It's a national security threat here in the West. Because this dirty money creates networks of influence in the West that undermine Western security. Ilya, this is something that you and I have 
worked on and spoken about uh, for a while here. How did you interpret Ashurkov's uh, call for these these kinds of sanctions? Would you agree with Vladimir's assessment of that? I think it's just uh, the tip of the iceberg. It's the beginning. Navalny has been, together with Vladimir Kramorza, Yashin, uh, Ilya, and Vladimir Milov, they have been asking European Parliament, uh, if I remember correctly, they've been asking uh, to put oligarchs under sanctions. I think uh, this particular list is just the beginning. It uh, has, uh, I think, a security angle to it because it right. targets uh, uh, several children or relatives, yeah. security people. Uh, yeah, and it just mentions two oligarchs. I think it has to go, um, the, the sanctions proposal should go much further. I've been writing about this for, for years. And I uh, I mean, there is countering American Adversaries for Sanctions Act, a mechanism already established in America to uh, deal with this. There, uh, there, is, uh, there is already a warning list, I would call it, from 2018, which consists of 200 people, uh, among them mm-hmm. 96 oligarchs from uh, Russia's Forbes list uh, at the time. I would recommend sanctioning at least several dozen oligarchs uh, and many, it's not just uh, Abramovich and uh, Osmanov. So I'm very hopeful that this is just the beginning. When you look at this, just to return to that palace video, when you look at it, it's, uh, yes, it's uh, Louis XIV meet Pablo Escobar. And (laughs) I I would uh, (laughs) emphasize Pablo Escobar bit because it's really not just about luxury and the scale of it. Actually, just to, to give uh, listeners a, a flavor, it's not only the palace, it's the size of this thing. It's a territory of 39 times bigger than that. And there is security services oversee it, border control, or whole government agencies are involved in protecting this as a private land, as a state within the state. But also what really triggered me as a researcher and analyst of uh, oligarchs and expert of corruption is the way how Putin collected money for this thing. As Vladimir pointed out, the West enabled multiple cash flows and and, uh, offshore accounts to go as small streams into this huge pond of corruption. And this is really a political symbol inside Putin's inner circle. That's how he presents himself as a mafia boss to all other uh, bosses. He's boss of bosses uh, in, in this huge mafia network. And it's it's a way for him to actually control these people, to show them that he has the biggest corruption pool of money, that he has the biggest palace, that he will do whatever he wants, that uh, government agencies will uh, protect all this humongous scheme. So I think that's also what really outraged many people in Russia who saw this. Mm-hmm. Not just the luxury, but the way it's organized, the way everyone in the state really participate in it. So I think the West should also react to, to this outrage and should punish these oligarchs who are looting their own people as a colony. Going back to Navalny, we have demonstrations planned for Moscow this weekend, December 23rd. We have the regime, with, as we mentioned, making some preemptive arrests to try to diminish this and intimidate people from attending. There are rumors that there are going to be provocations should any demonstrations take place this weekend. Has the regime's calculus about how to deal with Navalny changed? Because it seems to me before, Navalny, I don't want to say he was a, he had supporters within the elite. Let's just put it that way. There were people within the elite that felt that Navalny would be 
somebody with whom they could talk if everything fell apart at the end. It was almost an insurance policy where now it seems that the regime is fully taking its gloves off with Navalny. Am I, Vladimir, am I correct in that assumption? Because I have always seen Navalny as, always seen him as this very interesting figure. It's somebody who I always saw as very sincere in his beliefs, but also knowing how Russia works in Russia being Russia, it made sense to me and there was circumstantial evidence to support that Navalny did have some in the elite who found him useful. And I'm wondering if that has changed. How do you how do you see that? For me, I've never believed those theories. And I think they were definitely put to rest after the attempted assassination of Alexei in August and, and certainly everything that's happening with it now. But I think to, to me, in any case, the most this is sort of almost a side argument, because, of course, the most important power, the most important force that Alexei Navalny does have is not any kind of support or non-support within the elite. It's public support among the Mm -hmm. citizens of Russia. And we see that that support has been growing exponentially in recent years and especially in recent months. I mean, it's been quite high for a while now. You recall in 2013, that's almost a decade ago now, when Alexei Navalny, the only time he was actually allowed uh, anywhere near the ballot box in Russia, when he was allowed to run for election for mayor of Moscow, because presumably somebody uh, at the top of the regime calculated, you know, sometimes these people, when they exist in their own propaganda bubble for such a long time, they start to believe it themselves. And so presumably the the regime calculated that, you know, those opposition figures, they have one or two percent support. Let him run. Let us show that he has no support. He got 30 percent, even officially. And so since then, he was not allowed anywhere near the ballot box in any other elections either on a regional or on a national level. That was almost a decade ago. Since then, the support has grown exponentially. You see now, you know, you have for the last few days, you have this flash of these uh, flash mobs uh, in schools all around Russia where students are taking down the portraits of Putin and putting up portraits of Alexei Navalny in schools really? all over the country. Wow. And and you see the, the online following he has, the social media. Of course, the, the new generation in Russia now, it's not that they don't trust state television. They don't watch it anymore. People live on Facebook, on YouTube, and on Twitter. That's that's important. You know, that we have this whole social media space that is essentially uncontrolled by the Kremlin and, and all of its censorship apparatus. And it's just a different country. You know, we, when you look at the street protests that have been happening over the last few years, beginning uh, with with that wave of anti-corruption protests over 2017 and 2018 that Alexei Navalny's organization has sort of spearheaded, you see that the vast majority of those protests were young people. And the same was the case of the protests in Moscow in 2019, around the Moscow Duma elections, and to a large extent in, around the, in the protest in Khabarovsk and the Russian Far East in the last several months. This is the new Russia. This is a new generation. You know, Putin's going to turn 70 soon. Uh, the, the average you know, supporter of Navalny who comes up to these demonstrations is 18, 20, 22. I mean, it's not a good demographic to have for Vladimir Putin. He's the past, and, and these people are the future, and that's what's important. So to me, the most important point here is the, is the fact, you know, I'm astonished as to how many people in the West still buy into this Kremlin propaganda line that Putin is somehow popular among Russian citizens. Mm. I mean, it really bewilders me that people would actually still believe that. I mean, the obvious question to ask here is, if Putin really were as popular as he claims to be, why has he never allowed a free and competitive election in his 20 years in power? Not once. What is he so afraid of if he's as popular as he says? In fact, as we see from what has been happening, you know, I mentioned the Moscow Duma elections when nearly half of the districts in the city of Moscow in 2019, pro-Putin candidates lost to literally anyone, just some technical spoilers who happened to be on the ballot mm-hmm. for whom Navalny said people should go and vote just to send a message. I mean, there was a famous uh, instance just last fall in 2020 in local elections in uh, Kostroma 
where an incumbent mayor from Putin's party, United Russia, put up his office cleaner on the ballot to imitate competition. And she won on a landslide. She got 62%. I mean, people are getting so fed up with this regime. They're ready to vote for literally anybody because in most cases, real opponents are not allowed on the ballot. We see it also in public opinion. I mean, it's, I always am very careful to speak about public opinion polls in an authoritarian state for obvious reasons. Yes. Most people would be hesitant to say their true opinions. And yet, despite those caveats, you see recent Levada Center polls that show, for example, 59% of Russians calling for comprehensive change in the country. 62% of Russians, that's nearly two thirds, saying that Putin should be, without mentioning his name, that's crucial, right? That's, that's when opinion polls become more reliable. 62% of Russians who want to effectively age limit Putin out of the presidency by limiting the presidency at 70 years old. Putin will be more than that in 2024 uh, when he will almost certainly try to run again. And of course, we see it in more and more street demonstrations, such as the ones we had in Moscow, such as the ones we had in Khabarovsk. And of course, the big year for that will be 2024. Right. Well, we'll see what happens this September, first of all, when there's a national parliamentary election, depending on the scale and the obviousness of fraud. Uh, you remember well what happened back in 2011. Yeah. If anything, this year, fraud will be even bigger and even more obvious. So we will actually see what happens this fall. But the big year will be 2024. And yeah. by, by most accounts, and, and uh, uh, you know, mo- most analysts now agree with this, and you know, my colleagues and I in Russian opposition have said this for a long time, 2024, we will see in Russia what we saw in Belarus during the last year, mm-hmm. when, when Putin will try to run again and, and, and will declare a victory. Not only will the election be fraudulent, and that goes without saying, but also he will run in violation of the term limit. Because as you know, his final mandate is supposed to end in 2024. But last year, under the cover of the pandemic, while the world was well, looking the other way, he rammed through a series of constitutional amendments, essentially allowing himself to ignore the presidential term limits. The term limit is still there. It's waived personally for Vladimir Putin in a process that was completely farcical, even by the standards of general you know, elections in Russia, which, which is not high, as I don't need to tell you. This was just a complete farce with no campaigning allowed, with a week-long voting you know, on shopping trolleys, on uh, car trunks, on park benches, and right. makeshift locations, with ballots stored overnight at electoral commission offices, with no kind of oversight or control, with no international observers allowed, with no domestic independence observers allowed. This was a completely illegitimate process. And if Putin does attempt, as he almost certainly will, to cling on to power past the spring of 2024, there will be mass protests on the streets of Russia. But what's as important, there should be a clear policy of non-recognition of this usurpation of power on the part of Western democracies, beginning, of course, with the United States. Well, this is one of the reasons, and I'm glad you brought up this issue of elections, Vladimir, because this is, Navalny understands the nature of elections in Russia. Elections in Russia are not elections, right? We all know this. They're fixed. They're rigged through any number of, you know, carousel voting, administrative resources, good old-fashioned ballot stuffing, control of the media. Navalny understands that they are not real elections. They are legitimization rituals. They are political theater. And for the for the regime to have a successful election, they don't only have to get the numbers they want. They can fix that. They have to have good theater. And Navalny know, has learned very effectively and has become really good at manipulating and ruining it for the Kremlin. And this is why he's so dangerous. So I'm glad you brought up this issue of elections. Yes, September is going to be important because it's the last election before Putin presumably will try to legitimize himself in 2024. Given what Vladimir just said about where Russian society is at, Ilya, what do you expect this weekend? Are we expecting a big turnout on the streets this weekend? I think it will be unprecedented in terms of the 
number of young people participating. I mean, you mentioned different uh, social platforms, but among other things, uh, Navalny is absolutely exploding on TikTok. And this is where Russian youth is now spending a lot of their time. And there are unprecedented videos of school children, of students, of actresses. Um, that's actually what uh, uh, absolutely uh, surprised me. Many uh, actors and actresses who never participated in politics are now demanding uh, Navalny's release. And there are like TikTok leaders or high-ranked uh, you know, individuals with many followers who have nothing to do with politics, endorsing, uh, essentially endorsing Navalny and uh, liking him and sharing his videos. Uh, and uh, it's a completely new pool of people and, and audiences who, who are now aware of Navalny and uh, his video about the, the palace and his uh, struggle, his imprisonment. I think we will see, I'm, I'm not sure about the numbers. I don't know how much intimidation works, uh, but we will see definitely turnout in many cities and many young people. That's a prediction I, I can make safely. Maybe we will even see between tens of thousands to possibly hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. Well, that's a good way to segue because in a few moments, I want to continue our discussion and take a look at the Navalny phenomenon in historical context. Just how does he compare to Russian opposition figures in the past? And I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me is Vladimir Karamurza, the vice president of the Free Russia Foundation, chairman of the Betis Nemtsov Foundation, and a columnist for the Washington Post. And also with us is Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So as I think about the Navalny story and where it is now, I've also been thinking a lot about Vladimir Lenin which might seem strange at first glance. But this is not to suggest that Navalny and the Bolshevik leader and founder of the Soviet state have anything in common ideologically. They, they of course, do not. But the last Russian to take power in Russia from the outside, from outside the ruling elite, the last outsider to seize power in Russia was, in fact, Vladimir Lenin in 1917, more than a century ago. So I wanted to throw in a little historical context here, recent historical context. Last week on this podcast, I openly wondered if Moscow's Vnukovo airport would be the functional equivalent of Finland Station, where Lenin arrived in April 1917. Remember, Navalny was supposed to land at Vnukovo. And this is probably why the Russian authorities had the flight diverted to Sherebyetova because his supporters were waiting for him at Vnukovo and he was going to land and make a speech. It would, would have been difficult for them to arrest him. They diverted the flight to Sheremetyevo, diminishing the crowd that would greet Navalny and make it easier to arrest him. A little more context. 
Recall back on July 18, 2013, when a court in the city of Kirov convicted Navalny on trumped up embezzlement charges in the part of the so-called Kirov Lesser, Kirov Forest case. Thousands of people took to the streets in Moscow that night. In an unsanctioned demonstration, some even climbing up the walls onto the ledge of the building of the state Duma. Two days later, Navalny was released from prison. And when he arrived in Moscow, he was greeted by an adoring crowd of thousands at Yaroslavsky Voxal, the Yaroslav station in Moscow, which observers at the time noted was the exact same train that Andrei Sakharov arrived at when he returned from internal exile in 1986. Vladimir, you are our in-house historian. I am not suggesting that Navalny's Lenin. And I'm not suggesting that he is Sakharov. He, he would not take kindly to that parallel himself, right? <laughs> no, I, mean, I am certain he would not take kindly to that parallel. But the comparison to Lenin, the parallel with Lenin is not an ideological parallel. It is that Lenin was the last person to take power from the outside. Every other change of power, whether in the Soviet Union or post-Soviet Russia, has been an inside job, if you will. Somebody from within the elites. Um, even Yeltsin, who was, you know, was a function of the splitting communist elite in 91. The Sokhodov parallel is drawn basically from the Yaroslavsky Voxal anecdote. But where do you place Navalny in the historical context of Russian opposition leaders? Well, first of all, let me just say that I, I remember very well that uh, rally that you just mentioned in July of uh, 2013. This was the biggest, quote unquote, unsanctioned demonstration. Yeah. Moscow since the beginning of the 1990s. There were many larger demonstrations, but they had official permits. I mean, it takes real courage for people yeah. to go out to an unsanctioned rally knowing that they can and will be arrested. If there are not enough numbers, that's the key to this. And in fact, that's that's where you, you were coming at this from. This was unprecedented for, for in, in, in modern post-Soviet Russia. And I remember the site of this. So this was Manezhne Square, Khotmiryat, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. building on the state Duma, the lower house of parliament. And these were not, you know, people you would call professional revolutionaries. These were just no. all everyday people. They were kids. With young kids. <laughs> well, well, I can tell you, I was there with both of my daughters, who at the time were respectively seven and four. Uh, and my oldest daughter, who was seven at the time, because we could see that people were being, you know, sort of taken from the crowds by these armed policemen in helmets and, and taken away to, to police stations. And then people would start shouting, Navalny, Navalny. And, and my, my oldest daughter, who was seven at the time, turned to me and said, Papa, what is Navalny? Why are they shouting that? And I, and I said to her, you know, one day you will know who that is and then what he represents. Uh, and, and there were so many people that, Brian, you're exactly right. The following morning, Alexei was released and, and came back to Moscow. This tells you a lot about how much power public pressure and, and public protest actually has. On all the sort of other historical parallels you threw in, uh, yes, I mean, history always matters in Russia. History is important. And I'm being a historian by education. I'm always partial to historical parallels. I like to draw on them myself. It was actually one of the funniest quotes from this week, which you just couldn't make up on purpose. Mm -hmm. right? uh, from the speech by Gennady Zyuganov, the leader of the Russian Communist Party, who's, of course, you know, this tame, fake opposition in the Russian parliament, who, of course, totally support Putin and all the substantive issues, but pretends to be leader of the opposition party. But the point here is that, of course, he's the leader of the Communist Party. And he was giving a speech in the Duma denouncing Alexei Navalny and calling him an emissary from Germany who came here to uh, stir up the internal situation. I don't know if, if he missed the irony or if he's <laughs> illiterate, but the last emissary from Germany who did come to stir up the internal situation was indeed Vladimir Lenin, who was, who was sent by German money on a German train 
uh, in April 1917 yes. who came to uh, Petrograd, the Finland station, as, as you correctly pointed out. I was never been the sharpest knife in the drawer, so I'm not sure he got that parallel. But no, but, but you honestly you just could not make this stuff up. You know, you just I mean, no satirical writer, no humorist could imagine something like this. Zuganov did. But anyway, any case, I think, of course, I mean, there's obviously no no sort of substantive or ideological parallels of any kind between the the Bolsheviks and and the uh, movement, uh, the anti-corruption democratic movement that Alexei Navalny represents today. I think the only sort of relevant parallel here is that. And by the way, I would I would take issue with um, uh, with what you said that 1917 and Lenin was the last time an outsider uh, took power in Russia. Yes, of course, Boris Yeltsin had been an integral part of the communist elites. He was a first secretary in Sverdlovsk. He was a cabinet minister in the Soviet time. But he was ejected by the system. He was thrown out from the system. And he came back because of popular support. Yeah. He was elected. And he came back from the street. As no, well. there's no he doubt that he was elected. The first and only free election Russia ever had. Absolutely. So, so 91, I, I would count that was the last time when, when the elites lost power to the people. But to your point about Lenin, I think the sort of the strongest parallel here is that people very often fail to predict coming political change in Russia. You know, when the regime seems stable, when the regime seems strong, when it seems like there's nothing, the cannon will shake it. That's when things start happening in Russia. At the end of January of 1917, Lenin gave a speech to a group of young Swiss social democrats in Zurich, where he was living at the time. And he ended that speech with his famous phrase, that my generation will not live to see the decisive battles of this coming revolution. The Tsar abdicated in five weeks after that speech. Mm -hmm. Political changes in Russia can come suddenly and unexpectedly, including for their own participants. And I think it's a very important lesson to remember, not only for our people in Russia, but also for those Western policymakers who sort of make their calculations going forward on the assumption that Putin is going to be there forever. He will not. And, and going by Russian history and judging if Russian history is any judge of that, the next time there are major political shifts in Russia, they will come quickly and unexpectedly too. By the way, 1917, of course, is not the only example. 1905 was the same. 1991 was the same. Mm. Nobody predicted what would happen. And so those people who confidently say that Putin is strong and entrenched and for many, many years to come, I, I think they might, be, uh, they might be either pleasantly or unpleasantly, depending on the political views, surprised in the coming years. I just received a text from our common friend, Maria Snegovaya, who was a guest on this podcast last week, that on Saturday at noon, there will be a demonstration on Nemtsov Plaza here in Washington, D.C., in front of the Russian embassy. Uh, you guys probably already know about that. And Vladimir, you, of course, were instrumental in getting that plaza in front of the Russian embassy named in honor of Boris Nemtsov. As we push up toward the end here, Ilya, I wanted to give you your chance to weigh in here on the, the history putting Navalny in some kind of historical context? I think uh, we definitely have an unprecedented event throughout in 20 years that Putin is in power. That, that's for sure. We, we have a moment where he's challenged directly. He's challenged by a very organized, well-motivated group. It's during the pandemic. Also, do not discount that. Right. People throughout the world are, you know, the pandemic showed that it actually reveals people's inner grievances with the systems that they live in. And uh, I think in Russia, you have to multiply it by 10. The, the grievances have been accumulating for a long time. And uh, I would expect that this is going to be a very tough but interesting year for Russian opposition. I think the regime will respond uh, uh, with iron fist. Th that's their intention. But the opposition itself is much more prepared for this. I think mm -hmm. 
it's not just Navalny. It's it's a whole network of properly organized activists inside Russia and many passionate and active people abroad, like myself. There is a huge diaspora uh, uh, outside of Russia who has to stay out of Russia for a variety of reasons. And there is strong uh, support uh, for everything that Navalny does and his team does. And uh, it, the, the message is being spread around the world by himself, by his team, but also by uh, by us, by, by, by discussing this. And uh, so I expect Putin's ratings to go really low this year. I expect his regime to be really exposed politically, not just in September, but throughout the time up to September. And even if Russian opposition doesn't win in September and Putin still has enough power, you know, to suppress. I don't I don't think they're going to win. The best they can do is spoil the political theater. I would say my basic case scenario. Yes, they, they will probably not win. But I would agree with Vladimir that do, do not discount, you know, unexpected scenarios. Do not. I mean, no one believed what could happen in uh, Ukraine, actually, in 2013, right. 14. No one expected. Uh, very few people expected anything in Belarus. And uh, I mean, now we have this street protest going on for several months now. Um, Five months. Yep. Yeah, almost half a year. So we will definitely see much more street activity and street protests. And the, the biggest result in the next half a year, I think, will be absolutely huge anti-rating uh, which, uh, of Putin and his regime, and it will be visible. It will be exposed. Mm. So that's, that's my biggest expectation and actually hope. We do appear to be headed for a decisive round. I kind of analytically, I keep going back and forth and saying maybe I expect a long period of Brezhnevian zastoy or stagnation. Or if we are headed to a kind of 1991 type moment, um, I don't exclude either of those possibilities. Any last comments before we wrap it up for the week? This is going to be an important year to watch in Russia, and especially the coming three years uh, with a big transition year of 2024. It is not for the U.S. or any other outside power to try to effect political change inside Russia. That can and should and will, if I may add, be done only by Russians themselves. But it is important that Western democracies take a principled position, stop enabling Putin's kleptocracy, uh, and call Putin for what he is. And if he does decide to stay on after 2024, he will be not only de facto, but also de jure, a usurper. And you should be treated as such. I can think of no better way to wrap it up unless Ilya seems to want to say something. Very quickly, I think it's a moment of truth and very actually short uh, moment of opportunity for the uh, new Biden administration to act decisively uh, on this kleptocratic regime. They, they will have majority in, in the Senate just for the next uh, two years. But they want to conclude different treaties on nuclear arms, uh, on possibly on Iran with Russia. But at the same time, they have to show uh, resilience and a firm attitude to this kleptocratic regime by sanctions uh, against oligarchs, uh, by uh, showing resolve against Russian hacking, which happened at the mm. end of last year, by showing a response to Navalny's poisoning and the rest. So we're really hopeful that this is not going to fall back into some sort of new reset. Or I, I, 
coming up. Uh, we have to urge Biden administration to act. I, I, I don't expect us to fall into any illusions of another reset. Actually, I expect the new administration to be very tough. And on that note, we can wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from his makeshift studio in Fairfax, Virginia, has been Vladimir Karamorza, the vice president of the Free Russia Foundation, chairman of the Boris Nemtsov Foundation, and a columnist for the Washington Post. And also joining us from Washington's very hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. Thank you both for an enlightening and interesting discussion. Always good to join you, Brian. Thank you. Always good to have you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines, well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, which make us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical, and be sure to wish Ilya a happy birthday on the Twitter. Join us again next week. Thank you, Brad. <laughs> Until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.